Good morning, everybody. It's Lisa Salberg, and it's a Friday morning at about 11 a.m. Eastern Time. It is January 21st, 2022. We're live right now. If you're watching live, we will be taking questions and answers at the end of the session. But if you're listening to us in podcast land or on YouTube later or some other date and time, leave us a message and Mike and I will get back to you. Today, I am joined by a really unique individual and somebody I've known for a really long time. And we're going to get to know a little bit more about Mike Papali. Mike, good morning and welcome to Tales from the Heart. Good morning, Lisa. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm excited to uh, have this great conversation with you. I think we need to get our listeners involved with who are these people and why are they talking to us? Mm -hmm. So... Um, I have been running the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association for coming up to 26 years, um, which seems absolutely impossible because I'm 28. Um, but early on, um, well, not early on, but while we were getting our cadence as an organization, I distinctly recall the day the phone rang um, with a mom who was in a parking lot at a hospital and her son was in the hospital, having just been brought in within the past 24 hours after suffering a cardiac arrest while at a basketball event. And she was just hearing the words hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for the first time. And she was a good Google searcher. She <laughs> immediately found a phone number of a person who knew what that meant. And I met your mom, um, as she was known to me mostly at that time, on a forum as B-Ball Mom. Um, but Joan called, and we spent a lot of time on the phone getting to know each other while trying to help her figure out what was going on with you. Mm -hmm. So I met you when you were unconscious, in a way. Right. <laughs> that's right. And that's how I came to know Mike Papali and his story. And it's been an interesting one. So Mike, take us back to the few hours before I met your mom. What happened to you? Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm thinking you probably met her on August 25th, 2006, because my cardiac arrest happened on August 24th. Um, so it might have been that night, but my guess is it was the next morning. But um, so on August 24th, 2006, I woke up at like six in the morning and my brother and I decided we were gonna go do a basketball workout um, because at the time, we were actually counselors at my dad's basketball camp. So we went over to a local gym and did a basketball workout. And it was completely normal for like an hour and a half. And I was totally fine. Like, I can still remember the workout, you know, 15 years ago. And, and I remember it. I remember feeling fine. I remember it being like a pretty strenuous and intense and, um, you know, typical workout where my heart was, you know, all over the place, up, down, you know, sprinting, stopping. Um, and after the workout ended, we went over to, um, the Wallingford, uh, Parks and Recreation Center, um, where we, we lived in Wallingford, Connecticut at the time. And I walked in at like eight o'clock, uh, and we were counselors again at this camp and my dad was in there and I said hi to him and I changed my shirt and I ordered lunch and I don't remember anything after that point. So, you know, it's eight, eight o'clock in the morning, um, from eight to about 1030, I was, you know, coaching kids, putting kids through drills, refereeing, you know, typical camp counselor duties. And at 1030, I was sitting on the bleachers uh, right next to my best friend. And a bunch of kids were around me. I just kind of like, kind of like took a, a face plant, um, kind of slumped forward and, and was 
you know, laying on the ground and my friend stood up and kicked me and was like, what are you doing? Um, of course. And, you know, I was in sudden cardiac arrest. Um, and as I'm sure a lot of listeners know that are passionate about heart disease and, 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 and these things, the, the only way you can survive cardiac arrest is you need immediate CPR and a quick shock from an automated external defibrillator. So unfortunately, in my position, um, neither happened. Um, I was agonal gasping, which is a very common symptom of cardiac arrest. But because of that, you know, some people did not jump in and do CPR. And the building I was in had no AED in it, um, which is... What year is this? So this is 2006. So, uh, you know, I, I would say they're a little less prevalent than they are now. But, you know, recreation center, youth, adult camp, still probably a place that should have had one. But... Um, Anyway, you know, somebody called 911 because, of course, you know, I, I wasn't responding. And I got really lucky because in the building next door, there was a man sitting at his desk and he was working his nine to five job, but he was a volunteer EMT. So when 911 was called, his pager went off. And, you know, he says that he happened to have it on, um, on him that day. You know, it wasn't like an everyday thing that he did, but he had it on him and he, he looked at it, recognized the address. And what was interesting about that was uh, the 911 call that came through, um, and he's described it as an unknown medical. So he he kind of started walking over thinking maybe a kid at the camp uh, broke their arm or just got hurt. And he was like, you know, I'm, I'm certified in first aid and stuff. I can go help. And as he's walking over, another, you know, call comes through basically saying a 17-year-old's unconscious on the ground. And immediately he he knew cardiac arrest. So he ran over and um, found me and, and gave me really good CPR um, until an ambulance arrived and the EMTs were able to run in and use a defibrillator and you know they, they got a heartbeat back um, on site there and then put me in an ambulance where I suffered another um, cardiac arrest and you know the pads were still on so they shocked it right back and um, I ended up in the hospital and, and I think that first night my, my parents sat, sat with a doctor and the doctor um, Dr. Heller um, basically told them it could be a handful of different things. And one of those things was hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which I think you described my mom perfectly as a Google research master. So she immediately was um, on Google and of course, you know, found the HCMA and that's kind of what led her to reach out to you. And immediately your mom said, I want the best in my area. Where can I go? What do I do? Who do I call? Mm -hmm. And we gave her resources. Uh, of some individuals that she might want to get involved. And um, so one of them ended up writing the foreword of your book. That's right. <laughs> so I guess that referral worked out well for yeah, you. Yeah. And um, we're really happy about that. Yeah. So that's jumping ahead a little bit, but mm -hmm. we're going we're gonna to take this in bite-sized pieces. Yeah. So you wake up mm -hmm. after a cardiac arrest going you know, the minute before you remember yourself being a healthy, normal, and mm -hmm. I, I put my air quotes for those who aren't watching. <laughs> that normal, but. It's a podcast, <laughs> but uh, I don't know what normal is, but, but you thought you had normal health. You yeah. thought you had um, no pre-existing conditions. You hadn't had any signs or symptoms up until this event. Mm -hmm. And you wake up to the news that you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And the thing that you really like to do, basketball, mm -hmm. is not going to be on the table anymore. Right. And you're 17 years old, full of vim and vigor, <laughs> going out to take on the world like every 17-year-old. Yeah. And you're given 
not so great news. How'd that go over with you? Yeah, it was, um, you know, it, it was definitely a, a mix of emotions because I think, you know, on the one hand, it was like, you know, you're, you're sitting in front of a, a doctor who, who, I guess to take it back a little bit, you know, our family was very ignorant and, and, and unaware that heart disease could affect young people, right? So when they first had that conversation with the doctor, um, I think my dad basically told the doctor she was wrong, <laughs> you know, like he really just had no clue. And, 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 you know, I had the same surprise when I was told, right? And you always kind of associate heart disease with the, whatever, the old person or the person that's not fit or the person that, whatever it is. Um, so anyway, so yeah, I mean, I was in complete shock, uh, but the feelings were completely mixed because, you know, you have a doctor sitting in front of you telling you, this is what happened. You went into cardiac arrest and then telling you statistics about cardiac arrest. And then basically saying, because no CPR, no AED, you, you probably shouldn't have made it right. Cause most people in my situation that don't have those two things immediately don't make it unfortunately. Um, and so that was like the one side of it. So of course I was feeling very lucky and blessed and just fortunate to be alive. And then the other hand, um, you know, I wasn't a very well-rounded kid. Um, you know, I did well in school and I played basketball and I thought basketball defined my life. I thought it was my purpose. I thought it was, you know, I was very short-sighted, I guess, at the time. It was like, I'm going to play basketball in college and then whatever comes after that comes after that. It wasn't even like a thought. It was like a future me problem. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, there was extreme feelings of like anger and, you know, um, just not understanding why this could have possibly happened to me. Uh, you know, my purpose in life was like, felt like it was taken from me. And, you know, sadness, some feelings of like depression and just like frustration, like, what did I do to deserve this? Why did this happen to me? Um, so it was definitely very mixed, but uh, it was, it was definitely, and it was also very hard news to get. So you find out you have a disease that you didn't know you had. Mm -hmm. Then you find out that the therapy for your disease is to put a computer and wires in your chest. Yeah. How'd that go over at 17? Yeah, I mean, a lot of fear and like, you know, the doctors were, my doctors were incredible. Nurses were incredible. And they're all trying to like ease our like uncertainty, ease our fears. Um but still, I mean, when, when the doctor's sitting there explaining to you, like, hey, you're going to have this device put into your chest, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to protect you. It's going to allow you to live your life. Uh, it was, and then, but, you know, it could shock you potentially if it doesn't need to. If it does, it's going to hurt really bad. So it was, it, I mean, it was, it was really scary. Um, but, you know, my doctors and nurses did the best to kind of put my mind at ease. And, and it wasn't really an option. So it was like, you know, you're going to have to figure this out. And we're putting it in and, and you're going to, you're going to have to adjust. So I like to tell people who are getting a device whenever possible, mm -hmm. make friends with the concept before mm -hmm. you get it put in mm -hmm. and you've just survived a cardiac arrest and you're in a hospital and they say, well, you're not leaving without one. You don't have a lot of time to prepare for what it's like to live with a device and you don't mm -hmm. really have time to make it your friend. Mm -hmm. So how long did it take you to be comfortable with the device in your chest? Um, I would say, you know, after, after, I would say about six months, I kind of, you know, adjusted to it. And, you know, early on, I, you know, to be completely honest, when I went home, that's when I had the biggest struggle because you go from, you know, 14 days of being like cared for 24 seven. And if something doesn't feel right, you know, you hit that button 
and the nurse comes and I hit that button a lot. Like I might it like wore it out. Like I was hitting, you know, cause you're just like so nervous and, and something beeps and it's like, Oh no, what's going on. And the second I went home, I kind of had this realization that like, you know, I love my parents and, but they're not medical professionals. And like, I'm like, well, what if something happens now? And so early on, I, I had this big fear of, um, you know, I had this big fear of like dying in my sleep and the device wasn't going to work. Um, so, you know, I would say after, you know, you have that initial adjustment where, you, you know, you're in, I was in a sling for a few weeks and then you kind of get the natural movement back in your left arm when you're out of the sling and you can put your arm over your head. And I started kind of just like walking around like a normal high school senior is when I kind of was like, okay, I, I can, I can be okay with this. And that, I guess I shouldn't say it didn't like completely put all the fear away, but um, in general in my life, but it, you know, at that point I was like, okay, like I'm going to be able to kind of walk around and be a normal person with this device inside me. Typically it takes people six months to get used to it. Yeah. I have my rule of threes. The first three weeks. Okay. Let's be honest. They suck. It hurts. Yep. Yeah. And you got yeah. swelling and it's pain and it yeah. hurts. But the first three weeks, yuck. Yeah. Then the next three months, it actually takes all that time for the swelling to kind of go away and you know what it's yeah. really going to look and feel like. And then another three months, you kind of like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Right. So right. it goes from high intensity, focus on every minute to, oh yeah, that thing is here. Yeah. And it's yeah. protecting me. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I, I have a great one, something that has really helped me put it in perspective. And this came years after I was actually speaking at a conference and telling that exact story about how I had this fear of, I couldn't go to sleep, right? I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to die in my sleep. And I said it, and, and it was, I was speaking to a bunch of um, cardiologists, electrophysiologists, and, and the woman who was moderating, moderating the conference uh, or my talk, she's, uh, her name's Dr. Rachel Lampert. And her and I are really close now. We do some work together, but she said, um, I'll never forget that she was like, it's interesting. You said you have trouble sleeping after you got the device because of the doctor, I sleep better once I put the device in the patient because I know they're safe. And I, you know, I was, I was older. I was probably 26 or 27 when I was doing this and mm -hmm. it was years after, but I, I'll never forget that because it just kind of gave me a whole new perspective on, on the device. So we both work with Rachel Lampert for many years. Yeah, right. uh, in fact, I have to be honest, Mike, I didn't buy your book. Rachel sent it to me. Oh, did she? Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> She's like, have you read this? Do you know him? I'm like, yes, I know Michael. <laughs> and yes, I know you. And yes, sure. we have a small world. So it, yeah. we've worked with Rachel on the HCM uh, registry, the live HCM yeah. registry for athletics involvement. So, um, and we're working with her again now in a bigger role at the Yale program. Uh, so we have that in common. We have a lot of things in common, Mike. Yeah, um, yeah, a lot of things in common. Devices, HCM, crack chests, you name it. We got it all. Um, you can stop. We can stop having things in common that way. You don't want to. You don't want the rest of my stuff. Um, so, fearing your device. Yeah. Um, I feared when I didn't have a device. And I knew I was at risk and I was still waiting because mine, mine's a decade before you. So I was implanted in 97. Mm -hmm. um, I worried about sleeping when I knew I was at high risk and I didn't have the device. So when I got the device, it gave me peace of mind. But you were young and you didn't have a chance to process that you were right. actually safer at that moment mm -hmm. than you had previously been. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. So the original plan for Mike's life was to be this college basketball star and take that into a career path. But HCM, as I say, made you adjust the sails of the boat mm -hmm. and 
sail off in a different direction. So tell me a little bit about how the diagnosis, the device, the experience changed the path for your future. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, well, it definitely took time. So two things kind of happened. Um, first thing was my mom, um, again, <laughs> she, she got in touch with the American Heart Association, which kind of gave me an end to the world of advocacy. Um, and randomly, we had an AHA office in our hometown, which like, there's not a ton of them. So it was like a really random thing. Um, so we went and met with them. So that was kind of the first time I like, and I was totally against it at first. I was just like, this is, you know, typical 17 year old when your mom tells you to do something, you just think it's like dumb. You know, you're like, this doesn't make sense. What are we doing? And, and uh, you know, but I, you know, I told the story and I remember walking out of the meeting and being like, oh, wow, that's cool. Like I, I could see myself kind of being involved or working for you, doing something involved with the heart. And then, you know, obviously I was still had to make a decision about basketball and my younger brother was, you know, turning into a really good basketball player. And, um, you know, I wanted to be around him. So I knew I still wanted to be around basketball. Uh, so those two things kind of like, kind of pushed me along. Like I was volunteering, speaking for the AHA. I was coaching some like travel basketball. And then when I went to college, I decided to be a student manager for the basketball team. Uh, at the school I went to, it was a small division one school and they had just got a new coach who came from UConn and he was like a big deal. And he couldn't have been, you know, better, uh, you know, person to me and treated me really well and let me kind of join the team from that perspective. And it kind of gave me that sense of being a part of a team again. Um, and then, then I kind of realized kind of what the coaches do in, in college. And I was like, wow, I could, I could be a college basketball coach. And um, that's kind of what I, really put my mind to during my four years in college as a student manager and then really spent the next six years of my life after college doing until uh you know I guess the sales changed again <laughs> after that <laughs> well the good thing is the sales do change often in life that's yeah. <laughs> how you it's how you react to them and right. whether, you, whether you push them in that direction or they push you in that direction yeah but for you it's a little bit of both so you, you did a little coaching um you're still doing some coaching right yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so I was coaching full-time right in college. It's like a 24, seven, 365 was like really intense career, but now I, you know, I'm coaching high school and it's, uh, you know, I, I'm, it's able to give, give me some more balance and do a little bit of everything that I love doing, which is great. So I'm going to start flipping through the book. Cause I got left. Okay. Here. Yeah. So we're, we're going to, we're going to do the potpourri. And if you want Mike's book, we'll put a link below where you can get the copy of the book and you can read it yourself. It's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a good quick read and it's knowing the backstory and seeing how you wrote it. I'm like, yep, I know when this happened. Yep. I know when this yep. happened. <laughs> you, lived like, it. you lived the I, whole thing. <laughs> I was living in the background of the book. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm somewhere in that glue there that kind of put the pieces together. But after you get diagnosed, we do family screening. And what do we find? Well, so some, some good information and some like non-information, I guess. So my dad has a disease um, and they found that right away just on, you know, his echo. And, uh, you know, it, it was an interesting at the time he was 45. So he played two sports in college and it never affected him. And he just turned 60 and it still never affected him a day in his life. Um, so that was kind of step one, you know, my parents. And then step two is my younger brother. Um, and 
you know, we tried to do some genetic testing and uh, came back as an unknown variant, I believe is what it's called. I, uncertain <laughs> significant. Okay, 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 sorry, yes. That's okay. Um, um, so the, um, so yeah, that was, that was interesting as, as well because he was 13 and he was playing basketball and, um, you know, it kind of left him in like a gray area, which was hard for our family. And, you know, we knew we had to get him tested every year, but it kind of added some fear, it added two fears. So number one for me, Every year when he got tested, it was like the worst day of my life. It was just so nerve wracking. And I've always felt that, although I, not that I would ever want someone to go through a cardiac arrest, the fact that I did go through cardiac arrest helped me put into perspective that I could no longer play basketball anymore. And I think it's much harder from a psychological mental side for someone that is diagnosed off a test that's never been affected by the disease to get the news that your life has to change because you have the disease, but it's never affected you because it's hard for them to understand like the impact that it can have. So that was a really hard, like really nerve wracking thing for me. Um, and, and thankfully he, uh, he, you know, he didn't, uh, he, he, he played basketball in college and he gets tested every year and he still doesn't show signs of it. He's still negative. It, he's still negative. And then the other fear was this, that, you know, I just had this in the back of my mind of like, okay, he's getting tested. Say he's getting tested on, whatever, February 1st of every year. Well, what happens between February 1st, uh, 2007 and February 1st, 2008? Like, what if, I don't know, it developed, it didn't show on February 1st at the appointment, but it developed on April 1st and potentially, right? I did. So that it, we just had all these like, you know, things that, you know, it was just scary kind of having him in the gray area. It's, it's a frightening experience to, yeah. to go through screening of a family member. Mm -hmm. It's stressful. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, we often talk about it from the parental point of view, mm -hmm. but from the sibling point of view, you're already in the club you don't want to be in. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to see your kid brother or sister or niece, exactly. nephew, you name it, get a membership card too. Exactly. You, want, you hopefully want to protect them through some magical thinking that it's not going to be them. Um, but it's so important to have these family screenings done. Mm -hmm. And the anxiety, unfortunately, we have to just live through it. That's why we set up our discussion groups and some other support mechanisms so people can, oh my God, it's that time of year again, I'm freaking out, or it's been six months and I'm worried, and should I go back and get checked? So these are all really complicated issues, and as of today, you're the only one who's had any negative consequence in your family from HCM, is that correct? Correct, yep. So my dad lives with it, um, and I'm, yeah, but I'm the only one that's had, had any sort of, uh, any symptom, really. Yeah, and you picked a good one. The big, yeah, the, the main one. <laughs> you pick, they would pick a Mac Daddy. Okay. <laughs> so you had the opportunity to see Marty Marin within the first six months of your diagnosis. Mm. Um, I love in the book how you explain Noreen coming in and saying, Marty will be right in. You're like, the hell's Marty? <laughs> it's like Dr. Marty. Yeah. And the, hey, dude, how you doing? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's Marty's approach to yeah, a 17 year old. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like to tease him that he's kind of a big 17 year old too. So. <laughs> yeah, that, smart one. <laughs> smart he's a smart one. 17 year old, smart but inside, <laughs> I know I can still see that 17 year old kid yeah. inside of there, right? So you meet Marty, Noreen, the team at Tufts. At that time, Mark Link was up there. He mm -hmm. became one of your electrophysiologists who you get to know real well in a couple more years of this story. Yeah. And what I want to kind of highlight here is the difference. Mm 
So you were seen in a good hospital where they gave you mm-hmm. great emergency care. They diagnosed you mm-hmm. quickly. They gave you the proper therapy. But then you went to an HCMA recognized center of excellence and there was a mm-hmm. difference in the in the level of care and knowledge. Can you speak to that a little bit about what the differences are? Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said, um, you know, my Dr. Heller from Connecticut Children's Medical Center, like obviously helped save my life. Um, I was in a situation where I was very critical and her and her team stepped in and that like linking the chain of survival and did what they had to do to 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 keep me alive and and diagnose me and, and kind of get me going. Um, but you know, right away, I mean, the first thing is um, excuse me, the first you know, you're, you're going to a, a place that specializes in, in your disease. So from a patient psychological perspective, you know, immediately you just feel like this person spends, you know, if any, any physician spending, you know, 15 hours a day focusing on something, this person's focusing on exactly what you have. So it kind of is like, okay, well, um, you know, from my perspective, I was like, wow, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to meet with somebody that is, is, is an expert. And, um, you know, my relationship with Dr. Marin, I mean, I, I don't think that if I had never met him, I don't think my life would be what it is right now. Um, I think that he, his combination of brilliance and HCM, um, combined with his ability to relate kind of like what we were talking about is exactly what 17 year old Mike needed at that time. Um, and yeah, I mean, just, just to be able to go there and he- hear his perspective and you know, basically, and I think I said this in the book, but use the term like normal life with me. Um, like you're going to have a normal life and we're going to help you. And, you know, there's going to be some limitations, there's going to be some bumps, but you're going to live for a long time and you're going to live like a lot of other people. And that was the first time I really was able to kind of put that in perspective and um, even think that my life was going to be normal, right? I thought I was going to be just like, you know, to when I first met him, I, I don't, I wasn't exercising at all. Um, I was, you know, I was, I was still in a, in a position where I was scared uh, to do a lot of things. And he, he really helped me take that next step to, to being a, a normal high school senior, college student and young adult. And uh, like I said, I mean, I, I, I can say with confidence that if I had never met him, my life would not be the way it is right now at age 32. Well, I'm sure he's going to love hearing this. I know yeah. you've said this to him. I've yeah. heard you in conversations at the summit and things of that nature say the exact same things, but now you're telling the world. Um, And I think it really speaks to, you know, it it sounds simple. Well, Mm -hmm. your mom called the HCMA, the HCMA said, Hey, here are some experts. She chose an expert. She chose Marty Marin. It was the right match for you. And now here we are today. That sounds very simple. Yeah. It's not very simple. No, it's a lot of things had to line up so -hmm. that all of the resources were where 17-year-old Mike needed them to be to turn him into 32-year-old Mike today. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of things have happened this week where yeah. the common theme of the week is what we've built here at mm-hmm. HCMA is working to impact lives beyond my expectations. Mm-hmm. You're one of them. Mm-hmm. That it Because everything went the way it's supposed to go, in healthcare, which is not common. I had a talk that's going to turn into a podcast of its own with a healthcare provider within our HCM system who has his own diagnosis now of something rare. And he called me this week and said, 
do you know how important this work you're doing is? I'm like, I kind of think so. And he's like, no, it doesn't exist for lots of other diseases and they're not as organized. And because they're not as organized, patients are falling through cracks. Mm -hmm. And I, I just took a moment and went, okay, it worked. And then I was reading through your book. I'm like, okay, the system works. Now we just need to let everybody else know the system and grow the system. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And I'm not to cut you off, but yeah, I mean, your work is like, a huge link in, in, in patients like me. It's, and I've, I felt that way since I've been diagnosed and you were, you know, you started the organization 10 years before that, but you know, there's a huge need for the work that you do. And, and, and again, going back to it's, it's even taking a step further. Like if my mom didn't call you again, I'm confident that I wouldn't have, like, I have a really, I'm really happy with my life right now. And I'm very confident that if, again, my mom never makes that phone call, I don't get connected to Dr. Marin, who's allowed me to get to this point. So it's, uh, it's crucial what you're doing. It's awesome when things work. So you also have the advocacy bug, which I like, Um, (laughs) and you, you've taken to service in another aspect of the Mm -hmm. lives of those with heart disease. And that is because you almost didn't get to be here because a piece of equipment wasn't where you needed it at that time. And that's an AED. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've started an organization. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the organization and what you guys do? Yeah. So uh, we started in a heartbeat, which is a nonprofit organization uh, in 2000 and end of 2015, early 2016 is when we really got it going. And our mission is of course, to prevent that from sudden cardiac arrest and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is, what we're passionate about. Um, and we've, you know, early on, you know, uh, I'm similar to you, I'm sure when you started your organization, it's like very uh, overwhelming and like, what, what do we do and what's what going on here? And uh, talk about like uh, Google, you know, I'm like Googling everything and, uh, you know, just kind of like really figuring out because ultimately, you know, nonprofit world is interesting because it, you're running a business. And, and uh, I think that's sometimes that gets mistaken, but I had no background in doing that. But um, so we, when we first started, we knew that we wanted to help place AEDs um, to places that need them. And we wanted to help support uh, research projects that focused on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So right away, we, you know, we started doing some work, we started donating AEDs, we would support you know, actually the HCM center at Tufts once a year with, with a check. And, um, you know, we did that for a few years and we're still doing it, but we're, we're kind of trying to grow where, um, we, uh, you know, we, we connect with patients from time to time and, and kind of help them as kind of almost like a, and it's me personally, just to be like a younger person that can kind of have an impact in their life. And of course, suggest them to call you at the HCMA whenever they reach out. Um, but like, you know, just helping patients like of those fe- ICD feelings and things that I live, live through. And, you know, I, I think that's a huge piece of it. And then the latest thing is we're, we're working on, you know, helping um, young people in Connecticut get electrocardiograms. Um, and uh, it's, it's definitely a, that, that piece of it's a challenge, but I have a very abnormal ECG and, you know, mine would have been detected um, if I had one uh, and I might not have almost died that day. So we're, we're working with some um, two sides, community to just kind of bring kids in if parents want to sign them up. And then we also partner with universities in Connecticut to include the ECG as part of the student athlete pre-participation physical to get them cleared to play sport at that school, um, which is the project we're working on with Dr. Lampert, which is awesome. Um, so, 
Yeah, it's uh, it's obviously a huge passion, and uh, you know, a few of our AEDs have saved people, and a few of our ECGs have detected. You know, uh, we haven't gotten an HCM, but we've gotten a WPW that's been ablated, and a few other things. So we've uh, we're, we're seeing the impact, and uh, we're we're excited to kind of watch it grow. So we're looking forward to working with you on a slightly different angle on that project. And that's our HCM Act, which yeah. does not stand for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. <laughs> it's the Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act. The Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act will ensure that physicians know what the diseases are that they're looking for, for mm-hmm. all causes of cardiac disease in the young and put that in the well-child examination so that every interaction a family has during the well-child exam there's an opportunity to talk about cardiac health history in the family, in the child, and to assign the appropriate test to the appropriate family based on the family history. So mm-hmm. anybody who wants to get involved with that, all you need to do is go over to the HCMA website and up oh, and there's Ross or somebody, one of my staff just posted it in the in below. You can just go right on there and click uh, to learn more about that or to get involved. So I'm glad to say that we're getting some comments here and we're inspiring a lot of people to want to get out and get involved. So I'm going to tell you about a little program you're going to get noticed about this weekend a lot in your email basket if you're our emails. And that is February is heart month and it's just a couple of days away. And the HCMA is going to be featuring a warrior of the day for unsung heroes of HCM. And we've just selected 28 stories that showed the very wide diversity of HCM patient experiences from teenagers to people in their 80s, everybody in between. Some of the stories of those who didn't get to treatment in time and others are amazing survivors and thrivers. And we're gonna feature one every day through the month of February. So we're asking y'all to share it through your social media and we're gonna get people sick of HCM by the end of the month, hopefully. But they'll be- I'm never sick of it, so. I'm kind of sick of it every day. But I <laughs> um, and on top of that, on February 23rd, we're going to be holding some very special events throughout the day. Um, stay tuned for the full lineup. And we're going to be live as much as we can through the day. I don't know that we're going to do 24 hours, but we're going to try to stay live as much as we can with new content and new stories and new perspectives on HCM and a big media push. So hopefully you too will see HCM showing up in your news channels and on your news feeds because we need to talk about this. There are currently in the United States about 150,000 individuals with an active diagnosis of HCM, which means there are another 800,000 possible patients that could be diagnosed and get to treatment in time. Mm -hmm. So little initiatives, big initiatives. Mm -hmm. There are people at risk. We don't want more Mike's mom calling Lisa while the kid's unconscious in in, an emergency room. You got to get there in time. And with proper diagnosis, proper management, we know our survival rate is great. Without timely diagnosis, without the ability to get to care, our lives would not be so good. Mm -hmm. So we all have to fight for that. So Mike... We got lots of, we're getting lots of awesomes and yays and we're, we're inspiring people. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Get out there, get involved, click some buttons, send some messages. You can do this. Y'all got to pick up Mike's book. Okay. Look, there he's on the back, looking all dapper in his suit. (laughs) And, you know, very, very rarely do you actually see written on the back cover, 
hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So you know you're in the right place. And I wanted to share a couple of other little things. So, you know, when I talk to you, I take lots of notes. Mm -hmm. I actually found Mike's original file here. And the original pictures is mom and son. Got to embarrass him. There's <laughs> 17, that 17 year old yeah, and the yeah. Christmas card with the dogs. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, <laughs> it's for me, like watching you go from the 17 year old to the young man who's advocating for AED placement, working in the industry, doing all these great things. I'm really glad that everything worked. Yeah. Yeah. Sure and, today. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you, Lisa, for the work you're doing. Cause like I said, I mean, I, it really gives people like me the chance to to do what I'm doing now and and again live the life that I uh that I'm currently living and um that's the goal I think right for for a patient when they get diagnosed is to be confident that they're going to live a long life and be confident that they're going to live a normal life and the work that you're doing is allowing people like me to do that so you know I can't thank you enough it is partnership and it's a team okay mm -hmm. yes it's my it was my idea but ideas only go so far without everybody working with you to believe in the passion and the cause. Um, the cause is, is Mike, is that 17 year old that I don't know yet, Mike doesn't know yet, who's going to need a safety net and his family doesn't know they need a safety net yet. But when you need it, it's here. So it's a team, it's the center of excellence partners. So you can get competent care in your area. It's the volunteerism, it's the staff. It's the board. It's it's the whole thing that was built and it's going to still grow. We got a lot of work to do. I mean, mm -hmm. you're doing a great service to help people get AEDs when they can't afford them or they don't know that they need them. Mm -hmm. So that is a fantastic service. And I'm sure, I don't quite know where our futures are going, Mike, but we're doing some more other stuff together. I don't know what it is yeah, yet, yeah. but you know, we're doing something. <laughs> we'll come up with some project, but Definitely. to save the world in some other way. Um, so there's a lot of great stuff going on. And who knows what the future will be for Mike? So what is the future plan for Mike? Where are we going next? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I, you know, I just, I'm so passionate about what I do. And, uh, you know, I'm able to do some work now with an AED manufacturer. So I'm excited to kind of see like what that next generation of AED is and kind of have my footprint on that um, and what I believe it should be. So I get to do that, grow our organization and, and, and uh, collaborate, obviously, with other organizations like DHMA and you know, there's, there's so many out there doing great work. And, um, you know, ultimately, I, I just love to see like, you know, in terms of like a, from a cardiac arrest perspective, I'd love to see the numbers get better, right? The numbers kind of have been um, a plateau for a long time in terms of survival rate. And I'd love to see those numbers go up. And uh, it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of awareness, a lot of AED placement, a lot of training to, to make that happen. But that's, that's the goal is, is ultimately to save more people's lives. Couldn't agree more. You know, you, you think back and I, I do sound old when I say some of this stuff, but <laughs> it is what it is. I, I embrace my age. I don't feel bad about it, but um, it just feels like we were having these conversations in the 90s. Okay. Yeah. I remember going to my local um, school district, the K, K through eight. And encouraging them to put AEDs in. And at that time, it was only Medtronic really had the portable device. Mm -hmm. um, and I brought them the brochures and I brought them information. And I said, no, you really need to do this. There are children in our community at risk. And the grammar school took it up immediately in 1999. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. So Rockaway Township Public Schools, bravo. You got AEDs in 1999 and they mm. were properly deployed and they were in the schools. And then I went to the high school and I gave them the same exact talk, the same exact slides, the same exact information. And at which point one of the older members of the board who kind of was the voice at the time told me, the police will get here in plenty of time. That's their job. We're not spending money on it. And I was, I was like devastated. I'm like, how do you know how long it would take the police to find somebody on this campus? Like, and how long it would take? And I'm going through the numbers and I'm upsetting him because I'm make I, I I said no to him and I pushed back. So I was shocked and they wouldn't do it. And I went back the next year and I went back the next year. Um, they finally did it but they wouldn't listen to me about the emergency action plan and they didn't put one in place um, to the way that I would have preferred it. I'll be mm -hmm. honest, I was a little picky about it and the, and the locations of the devices, yeah. they, were, they were in the nurse's office and that was it on large campuses and in a multi high school system. Well, a couple of years later, they needed it on the track mm -hmm. and it didn't get there in time. And a young lady was lost. Would she have been saved by the device being on the field? It's not 100% sure, right? Because cardiac arrest, it's yeah, unpredictable. Yeah. But it took too long. Um, mm -hmm. They've changed their practices. They've changed the policies. Uh, and we've learned. But we only, unfortunately, learn from failures. Exactly. And that's the biggest frustration for me is someone shouldn't have to die for, for um for someone to try to make that change. And that we, we see it all the time too. It's like pushback and uh, on different things. And the second something, right? I mean, even in my situation, right? There's no AED there. The second a 17 year old almost dies, it's like, oh, we should have one of those. I, like, I just heard a case <laughs> out of a, a fitness center yeah. where um, the device was there, mm -hmm. but not used. So it's not a box on the wall. You actually have to take it down and use yeah. it and know, know how to use it and yeah. not be afraid to use it mm -hmm. and not fear liability if you do it wrong. Because if you do nothing, the person will die. Mm -hmm. If you do something, they might live. And we need people to take action. And there are so many amazing people that I know that are doing fantastic work in this area. And we all just need to keep doing it. Um, and then also, you know, so there's the two sides when somebody goes down, being able to respond, mm -hmm. but getting them before they go down and being able to get into healthcare systems that understand you, you mm -hmm. know, if you have an innocent heart murmur and have never had it worked up, how do you know it's innocent? Mm -hmm. It might be hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. If mm -hmm. you have athletically induced asthma and you get short of breath walking upstairs did you have a pulmonary function test to prove that? Or have you seen a cardiologist? There are low-lying fruit. Athletically induced asthma and innocent murmur are the number one and two misdiagnoses associated with HCM. And if you have both athletically induced asthma and a murmur, please see a cardiologist and rule out right. what's going on there. Mm -hmm. These are the messages we need to get out to the public. That's good, definitely. Education and awareness is a huge step. And uh, like I said, I mean, my family, had none and uh, didn't even think it could affect a young person. Obviously now we, we've lived it and we know it, but still I talk to people and they're, I'm 30, I mean, I've, this has been 15 years. And when I tell someone I have heart disease, the first thing a lot of people say is, wow, you're so young. I'm like, well, I was a lot, I was a lot younger when it happened, you know? And, um, but still it's just, there's a lack of awareness out there um, about it. And, 
that's what we're trying to do is to, to, to just educate people and, and, uh, listen, listen to your body, right. Listen to the symptoms. And, you know, I know I, I could tell about a million things, but that's another young athlete thing is right. The, the heart disease symptoms, shortness of breath, dizziness often are signs that when you're training at a high level, Oh, I'm pushing myself. I'm supposed to feel this way. Right. I'm supposed to be out of breath. I'm supposed to be dizzy because I'm trying to beat out the competition. I was there, but you know, you need to listen to those symptoms. And, and if those. That, that goes to the definition of normal when you're yeah. born with an abnormal heart or your mm -hmm. HCM develops slowly over time. Mine was present mm -hmm. at 12. My daughter was present at 10. My niece was present at eight. So mm -hmm. you can see it younger, but typically you just acclimate to the heart you have. Yeah, you're normal. Yep. You don't know what a symptom is because, mm -hmm. you know, it's is it a symptom to, yeah. you know, breathe you know that's that's just normal mm -hmm. and when you're short of breath or you're dizzy okay that just happens mm -hmm. well not necessarily so mm -hmm. <laughs> and maybe that was the slight warning the only slight warning sign that you had in advance that i get a little dizzy sometimes but how do you know the difference and mm -hmm. it's complicated yeah. so we want everybody to get screened there Okay, so Mike, I'm going to take a minute here that's not about Mike and Lisa. That's fine, yeah. <laughs> and I want, to, I want to talk about something else for just a moment today. Yeah. Um, it's a personal thing. Um, we lost a member of my community. Uh, her name was Evelyn Karpak. And Evelyn was um, about 91 years old. She died a week, week or so before her 91st birthday. And the reason I want to talk about Evelyn she was known as Tenta Ebi to some, Mrs. Carpack, Mrs. K. But she was the librarian in my local school. She was one of my mother's best friends. Her, her former husband, who passed away a long time ago, was my father's best friend growing up. So Mrs. Carpack has always been in my, in my stratosphere and in, in, in my life in some way. But this is a woman who bowled every week not necessarily well, but she bowled every week <laughs> up until the Thursday before she died. She was active. She did so many community events. She was involved with the Sons of Norway. She ran the children's camp. She was involved with the church. She ran the bazaar. She was involved with the, with the firehouse and the ladies auxiliary. And she was always someplace doing something for somebody else. She also lost her husband very young with four young sons at home. She raised four boys by herself, lost two of those boys later in life and went through a lot of hardship. If you, if you really knew her and you saw her out in the, in the community, you would never think she'd been through so many trials mm -hmm. and so much. And she was involved every day of her life, caring, giving back to people she even volunteered for the HCMA on many occasions in our early days with my mom stuffing envelopes in our little office in Hibernia. So when somebody dies, it's sad. But when somebody lives a life as good as Evelyn Carpack, I need to tell you all, be an Evelyn. She was an amazing person. And I have a small platform to tell her story. But she was an awesome human being. And I'm very honored to have had her in my life. So heavy, that's for you. <laughs> so I've announced my, the birth of my, my great nephew and the death of Evelyn on the podcast now. So you're all getting to know my inner circle. Um, sorry about that, Mike. I just had to oh, do that. Sorry. Um, so other things I want to tell everybody before we leave today, pick up Mike's book. It's a great read. Um, and I, um, oh, 
they've, they've already placed it in the chat there below. So you can pick up the book. Um, please visit our advocacy efforts and learn how to help us change law. Um, we need to change the law to change the world. And that's just the way it's going to be. So we're just going to do it, people. We're all going to work together and we're going to make the world a little bit better tomorrow than it was yesterday. Um, Big Hearted Warrior Tour coming up in February. Stay tuned for that. All of the events coming up for February. It's going to be an amazing month. There's going to be a lot of content. Please share it. Um, and stay tuned for an amazing podcast with Dr. Aslan Turer from UT Southwestern with some unique perspectives on managing chronic disease. Um, uh, his insights this week to me were just absolutely, um, I think I called, told my staff it was one of the most important and impactful conversations I've had in my life. And I'm like, dude, this is a podcast. You got to come on with me. We got to talk about this. So we will be talking to him soon about that. So I do hope that you all tune in for that. Mike, any parting words, any last thoughts that you want to share with the community? They're also inspired by you. Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, thank you. Um, that's the first thing I like to say again for everything that you've done to have a positive impact in my life. And I guess if I had, you know, one uh, piece of advice for everybody, all the other HCM warriors, that'd be just, um, you know, stay patient and it's not going to happen overnight. Um, but listen to your doctors, listen to other people living through what you're living through and, um, just, just kind of trust the process and know that you can get, you know, your, your normal life back. And it, it might be different, a little slightly different than someone else's normal, but you can live a long and normal life with the disease. And um, it's just going to take some time to get there. So be patient with it. I think that's very good advice. And, you know, we all have our own paths with HCM. Some of you, your device is your destination and that's where you live. Others develop obstruction later in life and have to go for a myectomy. Um, Mike, we didn't even get the chance to talk about parts of the book and I kind of left it as a teaser, but Mike had to experience open heart surgery for a completely different reason. Um, so, you know, it's not all sunshine, butterflies and roses. It's, it's things that test you. And I have a, a little hanger around here. It's like, if you want to see how tough, you know, a woman is treat her like a tea bag, put her in hot water and see what you get. I, I think that's kind of an HCM thing. Like just throw us in hot water, see how strong we can be. Yep. Um, we, we all have our balance to, to, to strike with normal life and achieving our goals and living with HCM and not in fear of it. You mm -hmm. know, my heart's in a box back there. Cause I don't have her anymore. Um, we had an amicable divorce. It's okay. Yeah. I got custody. Yeah. Um, I think I think you showed it to me. I did show you my heart. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've seen it. I think I might have touched it. <laughs> you might have. Yeah. I, I I've had her around. She's she's well traveled. That girl. Yeah. Um. But she's got to work. She's got a job to do. You know. Yeah. When when you think about HCM and you look at look at Mike, he looks completely healthy. He is a young, attractive man who looks like the picture of health. But that heart is wonky. It's wonky. And it lasts. Um, the very first patient ever diagnosed with HCM, Mr. Claude Brady, diagnosed in 1959 in his late 20s. He transplanted later in life and he's still alive today. The very first patient is still alive. Like we have a lot to be hopeful for. And we have great physicians like Marty and team and lots of other great physicians. 
The ne next week, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Harry Lever again. And then next month, I'm going to have Dr. Stephen Amon join us for podcasting. And he'll be joining me every other month. And I have so many great people to introduce you all to this year. So this is season two of Pod, uh, Tales from the Heart. We've got our new cool backdrop, which we've talked about before. Um, but we're excited to share these stories. Mike, I think we should make this like an annual chat and see what's going yeah, on. See how we, great. How we've it. conquered the world. And we look forward to including you in all of our HCMA activities. And we look forward to supporting your initiatives in terms of getting AEDs out into the public. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for writing the memoir. Now we're going to get it out there. Look, everybody, get your copy. Mine's not signed. How could that well, be? I don't have a signed copy. We'll get, I'll get you a signed copy. Maybe, okay. I, you know, I need an excuse to come. I've never been to the actual HCMA headquarters. So maybe that's an excuse to come. So you need to come down and deliver a book. You're not that far away. It's a yeah, drive. A quick drive. Oh, oh. I have to tell you the one last little Mike Papelli story that I don't even know if you know or not. So my daughter is now 26 years old. She's 26. Yeah, my daughter's 26. How do I have 26 year old daughter? <laughs> anyway, when her first college, um, she she went to um, Sacred Heart up in Connecticut, yeah. and we're there for the enrollment. To, um, you know, kind of walking through everything. And Becca has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy too, and we just wanted to make sure that it was a safe environment for her. So I said, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of this disease. And the young lady, I do not remember her name. Sitting across from me, she's like, my friend Mike has that. And I went, okay. She goes, he, he almost died on a basketball court. I said, Mike Papali? She's like, <laughs> I did not yes. know that. That's And cool. I said, I know Mike. She's like, how do you know Mike? I'm like, <laughs> so this, this is now That's like, 10 year, uh, like nine, 10 years ago. So she had just gotten her job there. And I guess she went to high school with you. Wow. So she remembered. Yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about, actually. I know who exactly who this she is. Um, because I know she was working at Sacred Heart after college. And I yep. she was a manager with me for the basketball team at Quinnipiac. There you go. Fun so, fact about her. Fun fact, I'll tell you a fun fact. She actually she's married to Kevin from Pentatonics. I don't know if you're familiar with Pentatonics. I am a cappella group and he's the beatboxer and they're married and they live in uh outside LA and they just had their first baby. So that is, I, I know for a fact that was her, so. <laughs> okay, well, you got to tag them into this post. Yeah, definitely, social. definitely. And Pentonics, we, 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 need a, we need an HCMA theme song. We have yeah, some, right? <laughs> let's get some lyrics there for Pentonics to definitely. do. That'd be awesome. Um, so she was awesome. And yeah. my daughter did not end up graduating from there, but she now has her master's. And Becca will be therapist Becca as soon as all the paperwork gets processed. So awesome. I built my own therapist. Yeah from scratch. Mike, thanks so much for being yeah. here today. I really look forward to having other conversations in the future. And for everybody joining us on Facebook, um, thank you for all the positive messages. Um, this is this is this is kind of fun podcast. We're not talking about nitty gritties of HCM. We're talking about beating it and living with it and getting in there. And we're going to do a lot more of this this year. So thank you all for joining us. And we're going to say goodbye. Have you enjoyed this episode of Tales from the Heart? We hope so. Please visit us at 4hcm.org, become a member, become a donor, become a volunteer. Great news, everybody. HCM Academy is now available online. What is it? It includes online sessions, learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patient stories about HCM and their management, and an opportunity to join online live with an HCM specialist 
to go over the slides, ask questions, and dig deeper into your understanding and knowledge of HCM. All CME courses are free, and you can find them at 4hcm.org or at thehcmacademy.com. The Big Hearted Warrior Tour continues. For the latest dates, please check 4hcm.org. And thanks to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Invitae, and Boston Scientific. Did you know discussion groups are available at 4hcm.org? Monday through Friday, almost every day you can find a discussion group. Whether you're interested in learning more about ICDs, pre-myectomy, screening your family, there's a discussion group for you. Even if you just want to learn how to balance your mental health, we have that too. So please join us for one of our live discussion groups, moderated by a peer volunteer, and you can sign up in advance at 4hcm.org. Just check the calendar for events. Please contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association at 4hcm.org or by calling our office at 973-983-7429. You can contact the HCMA by email at support at 4hcm.org. Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, is made possible through sponsorship from Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya, Invitae, and Boston Scientific.